Como la gloria del unigénico, del Padre, lleno de gracia y de verdad. John 1, verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we held his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As Mark said, this week was a vacation Bible school. I've never seen anything like that in my life. Especially since I got to be Sir Wally. I went to one of the transition team members and said, I don't remember this being in my job description. And she said, oh, darn, did we forget to put that in there? This is the week that my staff learned how much I like to whine and complain. I would like to take just a moment. Annika, I want you to stand up. Annika Crow. Thank you for an incredible, no, no, stay standing. Thank you for an incredible week. And I'd like to have, uh, if you were a child here that was part of this, or you were involved in helping, stand up. Just take a look around at how many people were involved. Very good. Thank you, all of you. What is a very good week. I just spent most of the week not doing anything productive, just standing out talking to people. And everybody around me is working and just observing uh, the incredible experience of God at work uh, amongst our church with our children, watching all the children. Um, I've never signed Wally on so many T-shirts before. It was great. Well, today we're going to, the first day of amphitheater, we're going to talk about Jesus. I know that's unusual in church, isn't it? Talk about Jesus. Mark and I talked about what might be helpful for uh, all of you that are members of DCC and all of you that are guests. And so we we picked a theme that we're going to focus on for the next 12 weeks. We called it identity theft. And uh, it's been my experience as I'm hanging out in a variety of places, talking to people about the Lord around the world, that our culture has, in my opinion, stolen the identity of Jesus. And what I'd like to do is spend the next 12 weeks um, just taking a different picture of Jesus each week and recapturing that. And let's look at what the Bible says about who Jesus is, because it's very confusing in our culture. I've seen many, many people that are confused by that. And uh, there's no reason to be confused. The Bible is pretty clear, I think. And I think some of these passages will surprise you, actually, when you look at who Jesus is. Uh, I'm not ashamed to say I'm a Christian, but I know that in our culture, as time goes by more and more, it's very difficult to say that, isn't it? Very difficult to admit that I'm a Christian because the onslaught, everything from the media to the uh, uh, what we see around us, the uh, especially in a county like this, uh, people don't really know who Jesus is and what Jesus stands for. That's been my experience. And I think it would be good to talk about it. Now, we have a disadvantage. Disadvantage is that we know a lot about Jesus. And we also know a lot about Jesus in a culture that likes to reshape that image. So I want you to take think just a moment creatively with me. Pretend like you have never heard of Jesus. You don't know anything about him. Or maybe you know just a very little. But you, do, you haven't read the Bible. So you don't know all the things that this says. What would life be like 
if you didn't really know who Jesus was. And you have to try to figure it out. So the first question we have to ask then is, in the absence of a Christian worldview, you don't know Jesus, what, uh, for you personally, what is a defining principle that makes sense of all of life? How do you account for everything you see around you? Is it live and let live? Is that the way it works? Is it hard work? If I just work hard, things will be okay? How do you make sense of all that you see from the creation, beautiful scenery to people that are poor and broken, don't have enough to eat, third world countries where people are starving, human trafficking around the world? How does that all work? How do you make sense of all that? You have to have some unifying principle. You have to have some way of making sense of it. Or, as good Americans, we just ignore it and move on and work a little harder. You know, way back with the Greek philosophers, they, uh, Plato came up with this idea that the rest of the world kind of used. Uh, his idea of the unifying principle was what he called the logos. That's a Greek term, which means word. And... Um, we add the word logos into a lot, onto a lot of our English words, biology, the study of the bios, or creation. Theology, the study of God. Sociology, the study of social structures. And so the idea of the logos, this word for Plato, was the way he summed up the entire creation. He had no idea what it was. He couldn't articulate it. He just said that whatever this thing is, it's impersonal, it's not personal, and it makes sense of the whole world. And so that began a journey through philosophical thought, all of our backgrounds, believe it or not. That began a journey where we learned that uh, we don't know how to make sense of all this. We don't know what to say about it. So by the time the first century rolled around, when Jesus appeared on the scene, it was pretty common knowledge, this logos. Most people would have understood it. It's very impersonal. It's an impersonal force. It's hard to define. It's complex. But whatever it is, it makes sense of all the world around us. Plato also taught that we couldn't actually ever understand this logos, not on this earth. And so the only way we're ever going to grasp it is when we die. What became known as enlightenment, which became the basis for almost every religion, including Christianity. We have an escapist mentality. I would say, thanks to Plato, don't we as Christians, don't we often say, well, we don't know, but when glory comes, everything will be all right. Is that very common within our own circles? Every religion has that. And yet Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly in the future. No, right now. Eternal life has already begun for every single one of us, whether we believe in Jesus or not. And so Plato started this idea that someday we'll figure it out. Someday when we get there. Now I'm going to read to you John chapter 1 with that mindset. And I'm going to play with it just a little bit. I'm going to translate it a little differently so that you get the idea of what John was saying in the first century culture. In the beginning was the Logos. Everybody would have said, sure, absolutely. We get that. This Logos, in the beginning, way, way back in eternity past, 
before we were ever around was this Logos, this impersonal idea. And this Logos was with God. Sweet. We believe that. Whoever God is. Every religious system has its own definition of who God is. And this Logos was God. Now, I'm using the word logos because that's the Greek term that John used. And what I'm trying to do is connect you with the idea that he's speaking here in a world that understood this language. And they all would have been familiar with Plato's concept of this logos. And so, John, that's what he says. In the beginning was this logos. And this logos was with God. And this logos was God. Everybody would have said, okay, sounds good to us. This Logos was with God in the beginning. Through this Logos, all things were made. Without this Logos, nothing was made that has been made. In this Logos, verse 4, was life. And that life was the light of all people. So all of a sudden now, John is using language of enlightenment. Light. Light begins to shine. That's language that Plato used. So John is borrowing language from the Greek philosophers. This light shines, verse 5, in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light always wins out. Always. doesn't matter how dark the room is. The slightest little pin light brings some illumination. Right? You can't reverse it. You can't have a bright light and just bring a little bit of darkness in. It doesn't work that way. And so this was a great metaphor for these early Christians and the people that lived in the Roman Empire to say, this is what enlightenment is all about. We slowly begin to learn, and it's all related to this logos. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And all of a sudden, we have a question. The true light? What is the true light? What does that mean? Because remember, this logos was an impersonal force. Nothing personal about it. By the way, that's pretty consistent among the world religions. Being impersonal. We believe something different, don't we? Verse 10, this logos was, or this light was in the world. And though the world was made through the light, the world did not recognize it. And all of a sudden he adds a little bit of personality to it. When he uses the word he. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Well, who is he? Who's that? Remember, you don't know anything about this Jesus yet. Or you know very little. And you're just reading this for the first time. Who is this? This person came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, He became the right to become. He gave them the right to become children of God. By the way, let me just say, I love a church where I have to wear sunglasses. (laughs) This is like awesome. (laughs) To all who did receive him. We don't know who him is yet, do we? Something personal. Something personal has entered the scene. Something new in the world. The world has not seen before. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Okay, pause just for a second. We don't know, at this stage of the story, who this person is. Remember, you're pretending you haven't heard of Jesus. 
You know very little about him. John has done something very spectacular here. He has captured the idea of Greek philosophy, this impersonal force makes sense of all around us, but he's done it in a very unique way. It's a play on words. It's a double entendre. And John does this all throughout the gospel with these words where he has two different meanings to kind of get you to play with it a little bit and say, okay, the word. So the word was with God. What do we know from Genesis 1? God spoke creation. What did God say? Let there be light. And there was light. And so he's using his play on words here. So this logos, this word, which nobody could understand. John is saying, we know who it is. God speaks in words. Why is that significant? I think it's significant because God made us to talk. Words is a very significant part of our culture. Very important part of the way we relate to one another, isn't it? So God models the very thing he's talking about. Now look in verse 14. This Logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's the surprise of all surprises right there in the Bible. Perhaps the biggest surprise. This Logos, which is impersonal, is no longer impersonal. It's now a living thing. Up to this point, most people in the Roman Empire would have said, yeah, 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 we got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like what we do in church. Yeah, 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 I understand. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden he says the word became flesh and everybody would have said, "Uh, wait a minute. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. How could a unifying principle that makes sense of everything in creation, everything you see, that you see here, plus you know about all around the world, could be captured in a person? How is that even possible? But that's what he said. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. This is God. I believe the one true living God breaking into our world to live with us. It's unheard of. In the first century world, the gods never broke into our world. We hope they stayed away. We didn't want the gods in our world. They weren't gods to be emulated or, or mimicked or imitated. We didn't look to the gods for virtue of what good and bad looked like. The gods simply held the creation or the world together. And our goal was to appease them. So every we brought offerings regularly just to appease the gods. But the last thing we wanted was for the gods to live amongst us. Because we didn't know if they were going to be happy or not or angry. I've shared with some of you that uh, in the temple in Madurai, India, they have these big concrete statues of the of elephants, one of their major gods. And, and all year long, people come and they buy these little round pallets of butter and they throw this at, at these gods. And if it sticks, they know that gods uh, will be not be angry. They'll be satisfied for a year. And if for some reason the butter falls off, they're going to be angry. It's hard for us to think of that way, isn't it? But that's the way the rest of the world, a lot of the world thinks. That's the way the first century people thought. We have no idea if the gods are going to be angry with us or not. The last thing we want is for a god to break into our world. Man, oh man. Hinduism serves 334 million gods, although how they count it, I have no idea. But they do. And if you ask a good Hindu, they'll tell you that. 
And so what ends up happening, just out of practicality, they figure out that we have a strong God here in this region, so we'll serve that God because that God can protect us from all the other gods. Imagine the chaos of serving more than one. More than one God. And you never know if this God is angry at you or not. So these words that John is speaking, is fa- they're, they're, they're fascinating in the first century world. Most people would have stood, looked, listened to that and said, what? What are you talking about? One God? This God broke in and became flesh among us. And then he goes on. We have seen his glory. We have beheld it. We touched him. We have seen his glory. When you read the stories and acts of the apostles going out, the disciples, and they begin to tell people about this Jesus... They didn't use the language that we use. We like to talk about his death on the cross and that sort of thing. They knew all about that. But what they said was, we have seen the risen Lord. We touched him. Our hands held on to him. We ate with him. We talked with him. We smelled him. He's human. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. This is spectacular. The concept that we serve a God who loves us enough to send His Son. This is Father's Day, and I know that for some of you, that's not a very happy, it's not a very happy day. I know that uh, uh, not all of you are privileged to have been with a father who... Uh, who we might describe as a good father. I understand that. But it shouldn't stop us from pondering what is a good father. Our country needs it. We really need to think about it. The truth is every father in here has hurt their children. I have. I've hurt my children. Sometimes badly. And I've had to repent of that. And I've had to work to work through that. I have a friend that uh, tongue-in-cheek says... When his children turn 18, he's going to sit with them and say, here's all the money I saved for college. You can use it for therapy or college. I recommend therapy. (laughs) That's real life as a father, isn't it? That's real life. But there are there's no question that there are some fathers who are very destructive. And if you're if you grew up in that, I would first of all say I'm very sorry for that. But let me talk just for a moment about what a good father is, because we have an example here. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. First of all, the father here validates the son. He's proud. He's proud. Go. Go. And not only that, but he's full of grace and truth. He's a father who can be depended on. Everything he says is trustworthy. That means that what is in What is in here is trustworthy. Whether you understand it or not, whether culture distorts it or not, it's still trustworthy. Don't let the media shape your stereotype of who God is and who Jesus is. Don't let social media shape your image of Christianity. Don't let other Christians form your stereotype. I guarantee you we will reinforce the stereotypes. Continually go back. If God is truly the one true living God, then what he says is trustworthy. But not only that, it's full of grace. Full of grace. 
What that means is, unlike every other God in the world, we have nothing to fear. Nothing. You can have confidence going back to the God, the one true God, who has expressed himself in Jesus. You will always find grace. And I challenge adults all the time. When's the last time we live in this whole thing of fear of what God is going to be like? Is he going to be... uh, You know, is he going to be upset with us? We have this picture of God wringing his hands when we sin. And You ever watch a father with a two-year-old? Especially one that has maybe three or four children. This is the youngest one. And the two-year-old is, I hate you, I hate you. Does, Does the father get all up in arms about it? Shouldn't. In fact, if anything, he'd smile. Been there, done that. That's a good father. Now that I'm a grandfather, I love it. Grandfathers are the most amazing people in the world because they have a lot of patience, typically. They've already been that there with the children. So all those sayings are true. If I'd known it's so much fun to have children, I, would have, I mean, grandchildren, I would have skipped the children. Right? Well, think about God, who's been through billions and billions of people. Is God really doing this? If he's omniscient, doesn't he already know the, first, the sin you're going to commit the day he saved you? Doesn't he already know that? I think what you'll find with God is a God who's very gracious. In fact, let me say it this way. When's the last time you had God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, what are you doing there? Or punishing you or all the things that images that we come up with. That's not the way God works. It's not. He's very gracious. He's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I think that's the definition of a good father. This is a surprise in human history. This is the story about how Jesus reveals God to creation. And so what do we learn about Jesus here that's different than what the culture says? When I look at the images of Jesus in culture, I look at the pictures, I look at the articles that are written. He's been criticized left and right from everybody you can think of. Even within the church, there's a whole bunch of the church that just scrutinizes Jesus. On one end, you have... Uh, Maybe there's more than, it's not a continuum. You have Jesus as a simple peasant. Some of you may have heard of the Jesus Seminar. Uh, He's just a peasant. He's an illiterate peasant that doesn't really know. Paul's really the one that started Christianity. Jesus is just ignorant. That's one view. Then you have a view of Jesus who's, who's, who's kind of stoic and impersonal. He's just there. And um, maybe as in words of enlightenment, maybe he doesn't. Then you have the picture of a Jesus who's just a good guy. He's always friendly. But what if it's not that way at all? What if the real Jesus is somebody that's very, very passionate about you? If somebody said to you, I want you to go rescue this person that you don't know, and you're going to suffer and be tortured and executed and die. How many of you would do that? What would be the only reason you'd do that? Would you do it for your spouse? Would you do it for one of your children? You would do it for somebody that you really knew deeply. The implication is that Jesus is someone who is very passionate about you. Each and every one of you. No, he's not some bumbling peasant over here and he's not some 
buddy over here. And he's not some stoic in the middle dispensing words of wisdom like the philosophers. Those are the models that we have on the earth. Something very different. He's passionate about each of you. Passionate enough to change world history. That's how deeply committed he is. So deeply invested he is into our lives. And that's true whether you know him or not. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. In fact, I would like to invite the communion servers and others to come on down. So it's going to get a little bit chaotic up here. But I happen to like that. I like the chaos because it resembles life to me. Last Sunday, when we were still in the church building, I walked by the nursery. And here's what I heard. It's the greatest thing in the whole world. I don't know who it was talking, and I don't know who the kids were involved. I just stopped and paused, and this is what I heard. So, do you think you can say you're sorry for hitting him? (laughs) That's life, isn't it? I just stopped and smiled and said, this is life. Church should be where life happens. And so, we're going to have people up here. And I want you to think just for a moment about this whole concept of community expression, community worship here. We have several things going on, as Mark said. We have places that you can, that you can um, make a sacrifice if God has asked you to do that. And I'd like to invite each of you to be, uh, to be generous and to think about it. You know, I'm a new pastor here and I'm just learning things. I did not know until recently that we served 4,700 meals to needy, uh, needy people last year as a church. I praise God for that. What a wonderful thing. Uh, your donations paid for paid for VBS last week. And I watched, I know it was more than 300. It had to be 500. It had to be 1,000 kids just swirling around me. The confusion, the energy, the chaos. Where did that come from? That's because somebody, somebody out there put money in. Thank you. Our promise to you, I can tell you, All the leadership would say this, is to treat your money very well, to bring honor to the Lord. So we have one marked general. That takes care of things like the VBS. We have one marked uh, community needs, benevolence. That takes care of things like uh, meals to needy people. Pray. Pray about being generous with us and helping us to carry out our mission. Then we have communion over here. Can I have one of each? The bread, one of the two of the trays? On the night that Jesus betrayed, he, uh, Jesus was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then Paul goes on to say he created another body. Who's that, by the way? Who? Us, the church. Right. That's us right here. So that Christ broke his body to bring about forgiveness and created a new body. And then he lifted up the cup after dinner and he said, this represents the new covenant in my blood which was shed for you. It brings about forgiveness, but it also introduces a new covenant, a new way of relating. A covenant is like what you do when you get married. You make a promise to each other. And this new covenant is we're going to we're going to live together in unity. We're going to help each other. If God has blessed me on the days he blesses me, I'm going to bless you. And there are some days when I need your grace. Other days I have extra grace to give to you. That's what a new covenant is. And this is what reminds us of that. This is where we experience the Lord, right here. And I'm going to invite you to come down and share in communion. And uh, don't come alone, unless you just really want time alone, and you do it intentionally. Grab a friend. 
Grab somebody that uh, maybe you don't know very well. Maybe you, you grab somebody you know really well. If there's somebody here that you are, you're at odds with, maybe you've had a fight or there's tension, and you just wish it wasn't so, just grab them and say, can we just celebrate communion together and just kind of let these things go by the side? We will not celebrate together as a church. So when you come down, you can take it and there'll be a server there to help you. And then there'll be people down here, men and women, to pray with you. If you want to pray, you want somebody to pray for you. Maybe you have something that you just really need to uh, unburden. Maybe you have a praise. Maybe God has done something fantastic and you can't wait to tell somebody. I love to hear it. I never forget two weeks ago, a guy came down and said, I just found out I'm going to be a grandfather. I said, so did I. <laughs> and we celebrated together. Maybe you don't know who this Jesus is and you want to figure that out. and You want to talk to somebody. We would invite you to come talk to us. Maybe you have a need that we can help you with. We'd love to help you. So let me pray for us. And then I invite you to just come down and enjoy being part of community. Um, if God has led you, we'd love to receive your money and use it well. For taking communion, talk to us. Pray with us. Tell us what's going on. Father, we, we uh, honor you, Lord, and we um, lift this time up, a time when we can experience you and we can experience each other, a time of celebration and fun. Thank you, Lord, for sending your son and surprising us. Thank you for helping us to understand that of all the gods in the world, you are a God that is very passionate about us. And um, you're not waiting for us to be passionate about you. You already love us. Help us, Lord, to uh, celebrate that together right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So come on down and enjoy communion. For the folks up at the top, someone will come and serve you and uh, bring to you up on the very top. They'll bring you the communion, give you an opportunity if you'd like to give an offering. And if you would like to be prayed for, they'll pray with you as well.
now incarnate Word, gird on thy mighty soul, our prayer attend, come and thy people bless and give thy word success, Spirit of holiness on us
Let's pray. Lord, we do honor you. We give you all of our praise. You are worthy of our attention as the word, the Logos, who came and became flesh for us. Thank you. Help us to consider what our own paradigm, our own understanding of Jesus is and challenge our thoughts, our hearts, our minds as we move forward. But also encourage us in our spirits. Give us strength and hope for our future, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Have a blessed and wonderful week. God bless you all. Thanks for coming. We will see you next Sunday right here at 9 o'clock.